You're listening to Lab Notes, the weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Enetpanus. And I'm Leo Stevens. And welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Leo. What have you got for us today? Hi, Mark. Uh, Today I want to talk about investor agreements. Um, They're also called shareholder agreements. So an investor agreement is a contract, essentially. It's entered into between investors and the company or the company directors to formalise the terms and expectations that will go along with an investment. They're usually signed by all investors in a round and they impose a constraints in both directions. So constraints on the company and constraints on the investors in an attempt to ensure that everyone continues to act in the best interests of the company over the long term. An investor agreement might include terms like non-disclosure or non-compete clauses so that you can't take your knowledge to another business, vesting conditions so that founders receive their shares slowly over time and can't just jump ship straight away, or perhaps terms like tag-along and drag-along rights, which affect how people can sell their shareholdings in future. Part of the investment process often includes a discussion about which terms to include in the investor agreement, and some are considered to be more investor-favoured, while others are considered to favour the founders. But when it's working well, the main thing an investor agreement should do is favour the company itself, ensuring that it can continue to grow and succeed even if individual investors or founders decide that the time has come to part ways with that company. And that, in essence, is an investor agreement. Great, thank you. Um, What's the duration of these investor agreements or contracts? Some will have sunset clauses, but mostly it is as long as that investment continues to exist, generally until the next major investment round. So if there is a new investment round, then probably you would generate a new set of investor agreements to cover the company from that point forwards and dispose of the old ones at that point. And very briefly, what's a sunset clause? Oh, that's just like when something would be due to expire. So that was just answering your question about how Mm. long it could last. A sunset clause would be saying that, you know, after three years, if nothing else has happened, then this becomes moot. But generally, both the investors and the founders would want these things to be in place through to the next round when they would be replaced by a new investor agreement. And how do they deal with uh, conflicts or disagreements between investors and founders and who arbitrates in that? Well, there isn't really any arbitrators. I guess this is part of the negotiation of the investment itself. So if the investors are not satisfied with the the terms the founders are willing to offer in their investor agreements, they simply won't invest. So the founders, I guess, are having to make some compromises based on what they would ideally like in the investor agreements in order to coax these investors along. And similarly, like if the investors really like the business and want to be involved, then maybe they would accept a less favourable investor agreement in order to be able to ensure they can invest in the company. So you mentioned the non-compete clause. Is there, like let's say, you know, I'm, I'm a part of a company, I leave the company and I move not to another area. Is there... Is there always a condition that says, no, you're not allowed to set up a business that competes with us? Or is there something in there that says you're not allowed to set up a business within 10 or 100 kilometers of where we are? Uh, These terms are up for negotiation. I guess if a founder thought that they might be leaving in a period of time, they might try to negotiate a less restrictive uh, non-compete clause. 
or you can, I guess, go back to all of these individuals and seek an amendment to this agreement after the fact if you realise that you know, for some reason you do have to move, that maybe the investors are happy to do that. But for, for most seed-funded startups, the expectation is that company is going to grow geographically to encompass the entire nation or the entire world. So they might be not willing for a competitor to be founded even 500 kilometres away because the hope is that this company will end up being ubiquitous. Okay, great. Let's move on to your topic for today, Mark. What have you got? Well, my topic today is called the H-Index. Performance and ranking of researchers at university is, is done using a number of key performance indicators. And one of these is what is called the H-Index, which is used to rank publication and citation performance. The H-Index got its name after United States academic Jorge Hirsch, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who in 2005 published a paper proposing a metric for measuring and comparing overall scientific productivity of individual scientists. And it's defined as follows. So it is a number that equals the number of papers that each have received a number of citations. For example, if you have 10 papers that each have been cited 10 times by your peers, then your H-index value is 10. So what is good about it? Well, it combines productivity, which is number of papers, and impact, number of citations, in a single number. So what's not so good about it is that it really is not favorable to young researchers who generally don't have a lot of papers and hence can't have a large H-index value. And to give you an example of that, Sigmund Freud has a H-index of 285, which is one of the highest known values, but he died in 1939. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of H-index. So we talked recently about impact. I gather H-index is one of the metrics that is used for promotion and for grant selection? Yes, it is. There are, generally speaking, if you are an assistant professor and you want to become an associate professor, then there are some common numbers that a university may look for in your H-index value. One other key thing, of course, about H-index is even though it's seen as a performance indicator, the performance of your H-index cannot go down over time. It can only go up. So it's not a true performance indicator. So your H-index will keep on improving over time. For example, if after we leave, I do this podcast, if I would never ever write another paper again in my lifetime, my H-index will still keep on improving. Because new people are citing the papers that already exist. Exactly. Interesting, yeah. And well, I guess something else that struck me about this system is that it incentivizes different behavior depending on your different career stage. So for a young researcher whose H-index might be, say, three, um, any paper you publish with more than three citations improves your H-index. Whereas for a senior researcher who might have a H-index of 50, the only papers that help much at all are ones with more than 50 citations. So you are really incentivized towards the late stage of your career to only publish very large scale and impactful work. Is that correct? 
That is the assumption that you're making there is that scientists are looking, are published, their publishing behavior is due to incentives like that. And that depends on the benefit that they can get out of their improved H index. But that is probably for someone that, say, has 500 papers, they might really think carefully where their 501th paper is aimed at. If So generally speaking, if you want to get more citations, you start writing review articles because they, in general, will attract more citations. So if you want to play the H-index game, then you should shift your focus to review articles in order to improve your H-index. Right, and I think we've probably covered this in the past, but a review article is one that isn't fresh science, but just looking at... It's a historical document. It's a review of what happened in the past and conclusions drawn and where this may go in the future, which means that if somebody is writing a new paper and needs to set the scene for the research that they're discussing, they generally refer to historical documents or documents that give an overview of the historical developments, and these are generally these review articles. And do you have a sense of kind of what is a competitive H-index these days for say, someone looking for a tenured position? Uh, For a tenured position, it is generally considered that if you have between, say, 10 and 20, you're doing pretty good. But it entirely depends on the field that you're in. There are fields where publishing one paper a year is exceptionally good, but there are also fields where if you publish 10 papers a year, you're just doing okay. And why is that? Is it because the science is easier? It is because of the way the science is done and the way the review process works because there are certain fields in academic research where some, the, the time between publishing a paper and submission can be three years. And there's also different fields where the time between getting an indication of whether your article is accepted is much shorter. And then there are also obviously fields where studies take years to complete. All right, well... Uh, speaking of taking a long time to complete, let's uh, wrap up this <laughs> yeah, episode should. before it gets too long. Thanks for joining us this week. All right, thank you. Catch you next week.